Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today, we talk with Anna Yevstigneva, the newly arrived Deputy Permanent Representative to the Russian Mission, about being a woman in the Foreign Ministry. And we also talk with Russian foreign policy expert Anton Barbashin. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. Russia is ready to provide the UN with all the necessary qualified assistance. In particular, we are offering to provide our vaccine free of charge for the voluntary vaccination of the staff of the UN and its offices. Russia's President Vladimir Putin made a surprise announcement at his speech at this year's UN General Assembly, offering to supply the UN staff with Russia's very own new coronavirus vaccine, Sputnik V. We thank very much President Putin uh, for his offer, uh, and it will be studied by our medical services. Everything that we do, and as we've been saying, will be guided by science, and it will be studied by our medical services. And Stéphane Dujaric, the spokesperson for the Secretary General, was very diplomatic when asked about whether the UN will take up President Putin's offer. But the General Assembly high-level session was the occasion for Russia and other countries to set the tone for the year to come in foreign policy. And the team responsible for executing Russia's priorities here in New York has a new member, Deputy Ambassador Anna Yevstigneva. It's not her first time in New York. She was posted here between 2011 and 2016, but she came back just a few months ago. According to the Russian mission, she's the first woman deputy ambassador at the UN mission. She's arrived at a crucial time for Russian diplomacy, as Russia is taking over the rotating presidency of the Security Council in October. October is also the time in which the arms embargo on Iran is expiring. So that's something to watch for on the 18th. Russia has also been pushing for the Security Council to meet again, in person in the council chamber, after meeting almost virtually since the pandemic began. Vasily Nebenzia, Russia's permanent representative, announced in his press briefing that the council will reconvene on the horseshoe table starting October 8th. But that doesn't mean the council is back to meeting in person full-time. 
Some events, especially open debates, which tend to attract a larger crowd, will be virtual. Here's Ambassador Yevstigniva on this. Well, it's very important uh, that we do further steps to get back to normal life and meet in person. Because, of course, this time of uh, COVID uh, was very uh, hard for for the world and for, for us and also for UN. But I think it's quite clear today that the discussions that take place on VTC, they do not allow a real exchange of views and uh, they do not allow to pursue real negotiations on things. And it's important that we go back to the UN to meet in person, of course, bearing in mind all the restrictions and difficulties that are connected with the virus. In October, Russia is going to hold a debate on the situation in the Persian Gulf region to discuss recent developments, including the signing of peace deals between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, and also between Israel and Bahrain. Russia says it does not have a specific outcome in mind for this meeting, but it wants the Council to listen to different point of views to alleviate the situation and hopefully de-escalate tensions in the region. The monthly meeting on Syria and chemical weapons is also one to watch for. In September, Russia pushed for the meeting to be broadcast publicly. It also invited guests who challenged a report by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. The report detailed the Syrian government's alleged use of toxic chemicals on its citizens in particular instances during the war. Western members on the council, mostly Europeans in the UK, used the meeting to highlight what they called Russia's use of chemicals on its own citizen, Alexei Navalny, a dissident who was allegedly poisoned by a nerve agent last August. Here's what Ambassador Nabenzia said about it in his press briefing. Navalny commented that he is uh, convinced uh, that it's Putin who is behind this. Uh, he has no other version. I mean, uh, I'm not even taking the question of why Putin would need it. I mean, that's absurd, absurd uh, in principle. But uh, I would say that even the allegation, uh, something like that, which uh, comes not just from Navalny, but is uh, somehow inherently in many uh, statements that we hear on on that issue, is insulting. I mean... That is immoral even to suggest this, let alone uh, a simple question, why Russia or the Russian authorities would need that. It's possible that the topic will come up again this month, especially after these Western members sent a letter to Niger, the outgoing Security Council president, on September 30th, saying Russia's poisoning of Navalny represents, and I quote, a threat to international peace and security. And I would recommend my colleagues who wrote the letter, instead of uh, telling us to brief the Security Council, first uh, to fulfill and implement uh, what is uh, necessary and what is uh, incumbent on them. Uh, And that is uh, to provide the reply to the request of our Prosecutor General uh, to provide information on the case. Also on Russia's radar is the crisis in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. No meeting is scheduled so far, but the council will be monitoring the situation after members issued a declaration expressing their concerns in late September. Russia has also planned a meeting on women, peace, and security. 
a topic Yvstig Neva is probably watching closely as she covers Afghanistan, Africa, and the Balkans in her role in the Russian delegation. Stigniva says she got into diplomacy sort of randomly, but she's now quite high up in Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs at only 39. There's another woman who's high profile in the Russian ministry, Maria Zakharova. She's the face of the Russian Foreign Ministry as its spokesperson. So we wanted to know what it's like to be a woman in the Russian Foreign Ministry. It is led, of course, by a man, Sergei Lavrov, who used to be Russia's ambassador to the UN. Before hearing about Yevstigneva's own experience, we asked a Russian expert, Anton Barbashin, for his perspective on the status of Russian women in diplomacy. Barbashin is the editorial director of Riddle, a Russian think tank, and is a fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's based in Moscow. Well, the Russian MFA is a very conservative uh, institution and agency. It has been trying to reform to a certain degree. It has been trying to modernize itself and have more women present. But um, if I'm not mistaken, I think today we're looking at about 15 to 16 percent women uh, working with the MFA. Obviously, the proportion uh, would be much lower if you look at senior positions. But compared to, say, 10 years ago, it is an improvement, uh, naturally. But it is one of those peculiar situations where the Soviet legacy had an impact of, at least formally, on women engagement and and, and various uh, forms of uh, governance and uh, politics in general, what one could say, but it didn't affect the diplomacy so much. And it is quite hard for women to to get involved with the uh, diplomatic service in Russia and to be promoted to senior positions. It is a predominantly male conservative community where you can only enter if you've studied in like one or two institutions in the country. It values... Uh, certain qualities of, uh, well, being a male and being, being rather submissive to your superiors, being loyal to a certain cause. And for, for women that are trying to, to break in, trying to move within the, the structure, I think the challenges are somewhat similar to all the other instances where women are breaking in in predominantly male uh, professional communities and more or less facing uh, the same challenges. But here, of course, we are talking about a very closed community where you cannot actually speak of uh, any, any situation of discomfort, any situation of abuse of any sorts publicly, because that's not what diplomats do. So think of an average situation of uh, women trying to, to, to work within um, predominantly male conservative com- community and then multiplied by five. That's probably what it's like to be a woman in Russia's uh, foreign ministry today. But that's not what Anna Stigniva says she has experienced at all. She sees her role as being a diplomat, not being a woman diplomat. I don't feel any difference because I was brought in a family and professional community where people judge by merit. 
Of course, I have a lot of women colleagues in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and also here in, in the mission. And we are colleagues and friends and we like to spend time together and chat on different things. But when it comes to work, I don't care whom to ask, a man or a woman. The answer matters and uh, the action, uh, their professionalism. The Security Council's agenda is constantly filled with African issues, so she has a lot on her plate returning to New York. One year ago, Russia held its first-ever Russia-Africa summit in Sochi. The summit was very focused on weapon trade deals, but also on cooperation. It was Russia's way of ingratiating itself in the continent and competing with China and France and to some extent the U.S. as an influence. One year later, we asked Yevstigniva, what's happening with the deals that were signed at that summit? Well, that was a very important uh, event that took place in Sochi, and uh, we were were glad to host uh, dozens of uh, African countries and to pursue the the dialogue with them uh, on an equal basis as partners, because uh, it's clear that the African voice uh, on any issue should be heard. And for us, uh, it's very important also to find our way to help these countries to overcome conflicts and also to help uh, their development and to establish uh, business connections. So as far as I know, there were uh, many important agreements signed that are uh, not only in generic and the political sense, but also uh, very pragmatic uh, and business-like agreements. It's definitely it will become a regular kind of event. Anton Barbashin for his part, believes that it is a challenge to compete with countries like France or China in Africa, and that few follow-ups were made on the agreement signed during the summit. Well, it, it, it's a kind of a big, big blob where we're actually seeing a lot of air, but not much substance. Russia has announced its sort of return to Africa after the, uh, the Soviet Union and all that, but there are sporadic efforts all throughout the continent with various sort of investments and various support from the official Kremlin, because some, some of the operations, some of the involvement in Africa is being conducted via sort of semi-official, semi-state institutions and entities that could be dropped at any particular point. Well, Russia doesn't actually have the uh, the money to to do anything grand and big in Africa. And in some instances, it is incapable of challenging China or the European Union nations in Africa, but it is uh, naturally capable of doing huge PR campaigns in in some individual African uh, states, some smaller operations that would have a huge media effect and would kind of play into the the narrative that Russia's uh, foreign policy is capable of reaching Africa. It is there on par with France and and China, for instance. But Yevstig Neva said there will be a follow-up scheduled for 2022, but the location is unknown. But before that happens, Russia and the council have been paying extra attention to one African country, Mali. There was a military coup in August. A former minister of defense and retired colonel is now in charge of the transition, but Mali remains fragile. 
On October 8th, the Council will have a meeting on MINUSMA, the UN's peacekeeping mission in Mali, and will hear the latest on the new government. On the streets of Mali, there have been protesters asking for more Russian intervention. While the influence Russia has on Mali is the source of much debate among experts, it is small. But here's what the ambassador says about its involvement in the West African country, but also her hope for the future of Mali. Yes, I also saw this media coverage, but uh, I think it's more related to the um, reputation and authority of Russia in the world and also the fact that it's uh, considered an honest and uh, you know, respectful partner for many countries in the world and including uh, in Africa. And Russia plays a role in Mali bilaterally and also as a permanent member of the Security Council. And so we will do all our best to, uh, to help to stabilize the country as soon as possible. It's important, especially after what happened in August 18 uh, in Mali. Uh, so we hope that there will be a swift uh, uh, restoration of uh, civilian authority. There are certain steps made uh, in this direction. And the, the new authorities in Mali will also fulfill their obligations regarding the Alger Peace Agreement of 2015, because this uh, political turbulence can uh, exacerbate uh, challenges and problems that Mali faces from before related to terrorism and uh, related to problems with armed groups. So we have to prevent it and we will use uh, our bilateral relations with the country and our role in the Security Council to make it happen. But we also respect the position of African countries and Mali, and uh, there was a very constructive role of African continent and ECOWAS. So we uh, trust the wise leaders of African countries that know the situation there better, and so that the leading role goes to them. That's it for our show. Thank you to Anton Barbashin of Riddle and Ambassador Anna Yevstigniva for their time. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump defect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.